Say you made it through your second day pretty well for some of you. It's been really inspiring to hear some of your stories of the discoveries and insights you've made. And um, just to get a sense of this web of people and their stories and um, just the little moments of waking up. This practice we keep talking about, Mark, Mark's, last night Mark talked quite a bit about what the, why we practice and what this practice does and what it's about. And I want to talk more tonight about where it's leading us. What, what is, if we do this, what good is going to come? Where, um, what is the promise of practice? And I think it's so important to remember, and we've talked about this several times, about when the Buddha started, he was this ordinary man. All right, he was an ordinary prince, but he was an ordinary. <laughs> he was ordinary. And he, he practiced. He really devoted his life fully to this practice of waking up. And then he did. He woke up. The word Buddha means the awakened one. And we have that capacity. We have a capacity to be more compassionate, to be more wise, to be kinder, more patient. All of these qualities, all of these virtues we associate with the spiritual, a spiritual person or the spiritual life, it's all possible for any one of us. And all we have to do really is work at it a little bit, a lot. <laughs> anyway, you're on the right path. <laughs> you started. And um, so I'm going to use a model to talk about what awakening might look like. And it's a model that's called the seven factors of enlightenment or awakening. And these are factors that, when they're traditionally talked about, they're talked about as. Um, certain qualities of the mind that ripen, that come into being, that we practice with and they develop and grow and grow. But when I was reflecting on what I wanted to share tonight, I realized that not only are they a process, but they're also sort of the promise of the practice, that these qualities can be manifested in our life. And they can be manifested in ordinary ways and extraordinary ways. So I'll just say the factors right now and then I'm going to talk about each of them and we'll see both how they've come into play as you've been meditating, how we can develop them at home, and then what they might look like or what what their potential is for your lives. So they're energy, concentration, calm, investigation, mindfulness, equanimity, and joy. Those are the seven factors of awakening. The seven qualities of an awakened heart and mind. And the, second, the seven qualities that we can manifest in our life as the fruit of practice. One more thing to add. I've been very, very interested lately in how mindfulness is getting out into the culture. You know, it's really, it's taken, it's, 
it's quite amazing just how suddenly mindfulness, which for years we were kind of practicing hidden out in Marin, nobody knew, right? And then suddenly it's just, you see mindfulness. Mindfulness was just last week in Time magazine, actually, I'm going to read you some of it. Um, mindfulness meditation is being uh, studied in scientific labs around the country. And there's just this whole interface. There was recently a conference called the Mind and Life Conference with the Dalai Lama and a number of scientists in, um, on the East Coast, some of various neuroscientists and people have been studying the mind and looking at this interface of Buddhism, mindfulness, meditation, and science. So I'm going to draw a little bit from that and to say that I'm actually not a scientist, so it's going to be a very lay person's understanding of science. So when we look at energy, which is the first, um, the first factor I want to talk about, energy, in a sense, is what got you here. Right? You had some sense, a, a, a feeling of wanting to be here, and this effort arose. And when I think about energy, I think of it really entwined with effort. Effort and energy. If you, if you make effort, energy arises. So we can... Energy is this quality that is so easy to identify. When you have it, you feel energized. You, have, you feel energetic. There's energy in your body. You're not sleepy. You have a sense that when you're meditating, you can sit for a while. You might be able to sit for a long time or go out and do walking meditation. Or you have it in your life. You wake up. You have a lot of energy. It's not anything mysterious, but what's interesting is how it comes to play in our meditation practice. That it's something that we can cultivate through our effort. And as I said, it took effort to get here, and then it took effort to stay here. Not many of you left, which is good. Um, it took effort to keep showing up to all these sittings and keep doing the walking, even when it was completely boring. It took effort to, um, some of you, it was effort to share a room. It was all this effort that we made in the service of learning how to develop ourselves. That we had this inkling, this sense in our lives that it would be beneficial to come to Spirit Rock and learn some meditation. And so we did, and we put in this effort. And when I talk about effort and energy, I don't think of effort as being this kind of aggressive we got to work hard, and then if I, if I sit another hour, then maybe I'll get enlightened. You know, that really kind of macho energy. That's not really what I'm talking about. It can manifest as that in some ways, but it can also be a more relaxed energy, a nice kind of alertness, and a way of thinking about it is more wholeheartedness, or even devotion. And we're doing it because we care. We're practicing because we know it's beneficial and we want to see the results in our lives. So we work at it. And our energy can be balanced and it can be unbalanced. And you probably noticed that there were times where you had a lot of energy, but you didn't feel very concentrated. So you were restless. So, and there were times where you may have had a lot of concentration, your mind felt very very uh, present, but there was no energy to support it. So then you became sleepy. And so part of the practice is this balancing of energy, of learning when to, when to bring up the energy if there's not too much, or how to kind of chill it out when it gets too much. 
And so we're constantly involved in this dance with our practice of, do I work a little harder? Do I relax? Do I bring up my energy? You can really, you can, you can uh, gauge it. You can notice, what's my energy like right now as I'm sitting? Oh, it's pretty low. Okay, well, I'm going to go outside and do a fairly brisk walking meditation, and that might help me. And it may. And so using this lens of paying attention to your energy and the effort you make to bring up the energy or down the energy is very useful. Now, when we go home, it's going to take effort and energy to continue this practice. It's not, it's not just, okay, now I've sat and I've done all these 45-minute sits, and so I should be able to sit for 45 minutes from here on in. doesn't work that way. It takes, it takes effort. It takes you really committing to this practice, to remembering what's important and why you want to do it. And um, some people say it takes as much, as much energy and effort as you put in in this retreat is as much as it takes at home. It's just the context has completely changed. And so to remember to be mindful in your daily life, which is one of our suggestions to you, and I'll talk more about it, to remember to sit during the day at some point, even if it's only for five or ten minutes, to keep this thread, this connection to your retreat. It takes some effort and some energy. But the result, and this is what's really interesting. I just, I just keep thinking, I'm waiting for the bumper sticker to come out that says, meditation, it works. <laughs> you know, because it does. Meditation works. And the, the, what you'll see is it may bring a new kind of energy to your life in a way you might not have experienced before. And part of it is because you're training your mind in new habits and patterns and ways of letting go of baggage. I mean, you may have been carrying something around all week and suddenly you just realize it's not that big of a deal. And you dropped it. And your mind felt happier and it made you feel lighter, like there was more energy. This is the promise of this practice, that our energy, not to say that if we have health issues and so forth that it'll affect our energy, but we can have an energy and an excitement that comes from the joy of this practice, from how interesting it is and how enthusiastic you are. We can take this energy, we can harness it, and see the effects in our lives. So here is this Time Magazine article from last week, Tuesday, January 10th. And the article is called, How to Get Smarter, One Breath at a Time. Scientists find that meditation not only reduces stress, but also reshapes the brain. So just here's the piece they said about energy. Many people who meditate claim the practice restores their energy, allowing them to perform better at tasks that require attention and concentration. So the whole article is about this this man who's a... What does he... He's a Wall Street investor, and he, he attributes his success on Wall Street to meditation. But anyway, it works for him, right? Um, many people... Anyway, if so... Okay. People who meditate claim the practice restores their energy, allowing them to perform better at tasks that require attention and concentration. If so, wouldn't a midday nap work just as well? No. 
says Bruce O'Hara, Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Kentucky. In the study to be published this year, he had college students either meditate, sleep, or watch TV. (laughs) Then he tested them for what psychologists call psychomotor vigilance, asking them to hit a button when a light flashed on a screen. Those who had been taught to meditate performed 10% better, a huge jump, statistically speaking, said O'Hara. Those who snoozed did significantly worse. (laughs) What it means, O'Hara theorizes, is that meditation may restore synapses much like sleep, but without the initial grogginess. So they're starting to do this work of seeing how the brain is reshaped through meditation, specifically through this practice of mindfulness. Concentration, this second factor. And hopefully you'll see that these factors lead to each other. And although, you know, the, the, it's, it's going to be the energy is leading towards more concentration and so forth and on and on. And it's not always so linear, but we'll just look at it this way for now. So concentration. Concentration, the second factor of an awakened mind and a mind that, in the future, could be very concentrated, for example. So on retreat, we experience concentration. Maybe we don't, but we try. It's this focusing of our mind. It's this bringing back, collecting, gathering, coming back. And when you find that you're able to stay with a breath, and then another breath, and again, and again, and again, you're developing concentration. So our minds begin to get more settled. Those hindrances, those, the aversion and the sleepiness and the restlessness and all that begin to subside a little. And as they subside, the concentration grows. Or you can say that through the development of concentration, the, sleepy, the, sorry, the hindrances decrease or are held in abeyance, it's said. So it's just returning again and again. And really it's developed as you've been doing it. There's no magic trick about concentration. It just, you do it. You practice it. You come back with your mindfulness again and again and again to one thing um, or a set of things. You can also, you can get concentrated when you are mindful of, say, a sound and your body and your, your posture it seems more easy to understand when we think of concentration as uh, staying on one object and getting very focused. So you, you use concentration all the time. When you read a book, you, con- you have concentration. You have to have concentration or you couldn't function in the world. But this meditation practice develops the concentration more and more. It's important to know that what we concentrate on is significant because... I've heard a Buddhist teacher uh, um, once say that chickens are very concentrated. They just keep pecking, 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 pecking. They're doing one thing over and over again. But they're not particularly wise. (laughs) So concentration that we know of. Concentration is ethically neutral. It's not, I mean, we could be a very, very concentrated bank robber or something. But, um, but we, so we bring our wise attention to what we concentrate on. There are all these um, new ways that they're using to try to develop concentration, particularly in kids. 
you know, there are these mach- there's neurofeedback where you attach your brain, your brain gets attached to all these sensors, and they have things like video games for kids to develop their concentration. And I've heard of one where there's a bicycle going across, and as you concentrate more, the bicycle goes faster and faster, and when you space out, it slows down. And there's other ones. Some I haven't actually heard about this one. I mean, I haven't, I haven't read about it, but I've heard about one where the more concentrated you are, the more the, the, the little man gets to um, run around, and the less concentrated you are, he dies. So, <laughs> I don't know, I haven't seen that one. But um, this, concent- this, this concentration, it can be developed in multiple ways. And at home, when we get home, we will practice, if we continue our meditation practice, of course, well, we can cultivate our concentration. And some of you have pointed out, who've been sitting for a while, that your concentration is better now than it was a year ago. That you notice your mind feels brighter, a little sharper, a little able to stay more consistently on the breath without wandering off in multiple ways. Concentration is so needed in our culture right now. We know this. I mean, most of us are so just distracted. I want to read you this thing. It's called, Grab That Phone, Read That Email, The Multitask Tango. As I write this, I'm making a list, answering email messages, talking on the phone, and surfing for low airfares to Florida. That's only fair. After all, you may be reading this while cooking, sweeping the floor, talking on the phone, and surfing for low fares to Florida. <laughs> Multitasking lives. Gone forever are those boring one-dimensional interludes where we sat and read a book, bereft of the garnish of five simultaneous activities. But is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? Maybe not. According to a Harris Interactive poll for the, mi- for the magazine Scientific American, Mind, 57% of adults said that while they were busier than ever, they often feared that they were accomplishing less. What are some of the top multitasking tasks? tasks? Sorry, what are, the t- what are some of the top multitasks? <laughs> I'm thinking and reading at the same time of multitasking. <laughs> Gabbing on a cell phone while driving, of course. Half the respondents admitted to that. Nearly half talk on the phone while reading email messages. No surprise there. But the list also shows that 9% eat while working out. Now that's bizarre. (laughs) And here's some kind of more pathetic ones. Doing business by phone while playing with the children. 29%. 24% reading, for example, a map or a book while driving. Anyway, that was last year's study. Oh, two years ago, 2004. So, um, so we know that our culture is this culture of distraction. This culture is not concentrated. I mean, people refer to it as the ADD culture, right? We live with attention deficit disorder, and it's, it's, not, it, it's like a cultural disorder. We're so busy. We have so much media coming in at us all the time. And productivity is linked to our ability to multitask, as this was pointing out. So meditation, what a great... I I don't think it's actually a coincidence that meditation is getting so popular in this moment, this historical moment. You know, we're getting more distracted, so other technologies have to emerge or um, be known, become known, that are going to help us with our distractedness. 
I just um, finished working on a study on uh, mindfulness and its effect on ADD, on attention deficit disorder. I, we taught mindfulness to two groups of adolescents and adults. And it wasn't a very big study. It's actually kind of a precursor to what's going to be quite a big study once, um, once you, anyway, it has to go through a whole set of processes. But these people, a, a lot of people came in who were very distracted, had a very difficult time with concentration, and we taught them to meditate. And no surprise to us, it worked. <laughs> It was great, and it was actually incredibly moving to be part of this, and it's sort of a historic study, and it's gonna, we'll see what the results are. I'm telling you a little prematurely, because the publication hasn't come out yet, but um, there was seen to be an 87% improvement on some tests. And these were, these were real, you know, sci- I don't know, scientific, I didn't do the research, I just did the meditation. But, um, <laughs> They, um, but they, they, uh, you know, they tested using different computers as well as self-report and exercises and all sorts of things to te- to test attention regulation and um, self-awareness and ability to come back into the moment. And it was just phenomenal the results. And so we see this future of using mindfulness to help help both individuals who identify as having ADD, but also. Um, also, other people, um, you know, all of us who have some version of it, even if you don't want to really call it that, and a lot of people don't like to. So think about... I'll just, just, just say, think about what the promise of mindfulness and concentration can bring to, to humans, you know? teaching us to just slow down, to be present, to be concentrated, to focus on one task, to talk to your friend and really talk to your friend, really be present. And it's wonderful. You know what it's like when people concentrate and and you are the focus of their concentration. It feels good. You feel seen and heard. We have this potential to have minds that are so much more centered and focused So Time Magazine talks about this in this article. One recent study found evidence that the daily practice of meditation thickened the parts of the brain's cerebral cortex responsible for decision-making, attention, and memory. Sarah Lazar, a research scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital, presented preliminary results last November that showed that the gray matter of 20 men and women who meditated for just 40 minutes a day was thicker than that of people who did not. Okay, so that's the part that's responsible for decision, attention, and memory. Um, Unlike in previous studies focusing on Buddhist monks, the subjects were Boston-area workers practicing a Western style of meditation called mindfulness or insight meditation. We showed for the first time that you don't have to do it all day for similar results. What's more... The research suggests that the meditation may slow the natural thinning of the section of the cortex that occurs with age. So if you're concerned about aging and losing your memory, meditate. (laughs) So this ties into the next factor, which is this factor of calm or tranquility. And this is this... uh, 
When you notice that your mind and your body have gotten a little bit more relaxed and subtle and there's more sense of ease or calm, this is the factor of calm that's coming up in your heart and mind. It's kind of one analogy that sometimes uses, you know, when you have one of those organic apple juices with all the little pieces floating around in it and then you shake it up and and that's what our minds are like. And then slowly it starts to sink down to the bottom and ultimately it just stops and the, the juice is pretty clear. That's us calming our mind. And we're doing it. It happens again through effort, through concentration. And many of you talked about this. You talked about these moments where suddenly you just felt really peaceful. And it was a huge surprise. It's like, oh, I'm just kind of peaceful. And it's funny because we don't recognize peace very often or calm. Because most of us are used to these lives that are lots of drama and ups and downs and interesting, exciting things that we think going on all the time. But actually, peace is really nice. You know, peace is, it's, it's, it's a little different. It's a little more like a gap in the activity. And it's sometimes hard to recognize or, or it's sometimes... We're not used to thinking it's a good thing, so we sometimes skip right over it. But actually, it's peace. It's calm. It's, it's our mind calming down. So again, it's, really, it's very related to the concentration, and we can imagine what our lives will be like as we continue to practice mindfulness meditation. That we will be calmer. Of the people that I worked with on the ADD study, a lot of them reported being much calmer than they ever had been before. Some of them said, people didn't recognize me. It was interesting. I mean, these were people who identify very strongly with with their ADD as having it. This, by the way, was an eight-week study. We did mindfulness meditation classes for two and a half hours once a week for eight weeks. They had to practice at home They practiced at home for five minutes a day the first couple of weeks, and they increased it slowly to 10, 15, and finally 20, 25 by the end. And there was that much of a change in just that. This was done through um, UCLA a uh, a few months ago. So we can be calmer. Imagine what our friends and family will say. I don't recognize you. The Zen master and poet Thich Nhat Hanh tells a story of when the Vietnamese people were leaving Vietnam in the boats. They were boat people who were, they were in these kind of creaky, like very, very suspect boats. You're not sure you would want to get into one, but they had to get across the waters and they were being pursued by um, pirates and often in the open seas that were really, really dangerous in um, in the you know because of weather and also because of the fear that they had of leaving their homeland illegally and trying to find refuge in Hong Kong and places like that. And what he said was often people would be panicking because it was such a scary experience. But if there was one person on the boat who was calm, it would calm the whole boat down. I mean, it's an amazing story. Think what one, just being calm, going into your office and being calm in the midst of everything going on. 
meditation can cultivate that. So investigation. So we so we've gone from let's just say we've gone from effort. We put in effort and energy to be concentrated, to calm ourselves down. And from this place of calm and concentration, we can investigate life. So remember, this is Vipassana for the curious. We're investigating here. We're really curious. And that's this quality we're trying to develop here. And it's, the way it's talked about classically is as if you're in a dark room and suddenly a light is shined on, on and it's as, or a flashlight is turned on and it's all illuminated. This is this quality of investigation. You get really curious and you see things more clearly. And it comes as we take interest in our experience. So you can get really curious about your pain. We investigate our pain, not thinking about our pain, but actually bringing our attention into the area of pain and feeling it and noticing what happens as it changes. And through that process, we learn about pain. And we learn about our, our relationship to pain. Because this investigative mind can see the true nature of things. And ultimately, as we practice... And we can go home and just as we keep that natural quality of curiosity and investigation and just really an open-mindedness about this, and that may mean a lot of things for you. It may mean that you want to read a lot more books about this because this felt like a little taste, but you want to kind of satisfy your intellectual mind. Um, It might be investigating through talking with people or joining meditation groups or really investigating so that you deepen your understanding of this practice. But from a very specific practice level that's not so much about book knowledge, we're talking about learning who we are, I think. That this practice takes us deep inside ourselves and helps us see who are we? What are we about? What do we care about? What makes us tick? What do we hate? What motivates us? What kind of patterns consistently emerge in our minds again and again and again? Oh, I'm like that. How interesting. So the practice is really... um, We've talked about it as a laboratory, and you're the specimen. You know, you're turning your investigative lens on yourself. If you want to know about yourself, you don't just... Uh, you don't read a book about Homo sapiens or Homo shopians or whatever, but you read, a, you 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 look, you look into yourself. And what you may have seen is, as your practice gets, as you calm and concentrate your mind, you may have insight. Insight. This remember vipassana meditation. Insight meditation. You might learn about yourself. You might have some kind of psychological understanding. You might have some kind of understanding about the way the practice works and how to make it work for you. You might have an understanding about your mind. Just understanding, wow, this is the way my mind operates. I never noticed. A lot of you just talked about a really simple insight that we may have missed up into, our, into this moment, which is, 
our minds think a lot. You know, it, 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 it just took being quiet to figure this out, how much, time, how much our mind thinks. Not by guessing, just by seeing. This is the investigation quality. And sometimes what we, we see is insight into the nature of reality. We get insight into the way that things are changing all the time. Or that if we do something, it will lead to suffering. And that suffering exists in this life. We see it really closely. Or the selfless nature of things. The way that it's just happening. Things are just happening. Our minds are just thinking. Our thoughts are just coming and tumbling. Empty phenomenon rolling by, we sometimes say. One thing that I've found insights coming for me on retreat has been when I've seen, when it's been a microcosm, where what I've been experiencing on my cushion gives me insight into the way I operate in the world. So an example of that might be I was doing a meditation retreat uh, at a meditation center in in Massachusetts, and um, the weather was very unpredictable. It was, you just never really knew what was going to happen. It could be cold, and then it would suddenly get hot. And so I would go out to do walking meditation. This was a long retreat, and it was going into the winter months. And I would try to figure out what to wear for the, to be outside. So I would put on layers. And I would go out and do walking meditation, and suddenly I'd notice I'm a little hot. So I'd take off my coat, and then I'd walk a little, and then I'd realize I'm cold, so I'd put it back on. And then I'd realize I was hot, and I'd walk a little. And it would just go on and on. And finally, I thought, wow, I am spending a huge amount of time trying to control my temperature, my body temperature. Like, I couldn't just be with, here's a little hot, here's a little cold. But it's like, I had to control it. I had to make it sort of work for me. And I was spending all this time manipulating my clothing so that I would be happy and free from suffering. And it was so interesting to see that because I realized I do this all the time. It's not just about a coat. I do this in my relationships. I do this at work. I do this. I want everything to be nice. I want the temperature to be perfect, metaphorically. And when I saw that, when I saw so clearly by the simple act of paying attention, I was able to let go some. And it's helped me over the years to relax that need to make everything good and safe and secure all the time in a world where it's not safe and secure all the time and we can't control the weather, in case you haven't noticed. So the, pro- the promise of this practice with investigation is that we will have these insights, and many of you did on this, on this retreat, and you'll continue to have insights at home, and you, continue, you have had them your whole life, and you'll continue to have them. The practice facilitates it, and we change. We don't stay the same. This is what the scientists are now finally saying. They used to think that brains stopped developing after a certain age, you know, through adolescence, and then they stopped developing. And now they realize that there's this thing called neuroplasticity, which I'm sure most of you know about, 
which is that the brain, the circuits are continually honing themselves and pruning themselves and cutting out what's not used and developing what is used. And so if you develop your mindfulness circuits, you will be more mindful. If you open, if you calm and concentrate through some energy and some effort, and you open with an investigative mind, you will have things that will change your life. Now is change this thing where suddenly we've changed and that's it? And now, or, or, or we, sit, we do this meditation retreat, are we going to go home and we're going to be changed and everybody's going to love us now because we're so perfect and exactly who we thought we're supposed to be? Change is a little slow and gradual. So I just want to um, read something that might, that I think illustrates change. It's called Autobiography in Five Chapters. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe it. I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit. (laughs) My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) It is possible. The unifying factor of these seven factors in all of this is mindfulness. Mindfulness helps us to balance and regulate and be clear on what we need and it's, it's ju- it is this quality of being um, present in the moment of coming back again and again, of not forgetting, of not being distracted. And be, it's, it's a deliberate, on-purpose, present time, non-judgmental awareness. When I say non-judgmental, it doesn't mean that we don't judge, because we do, as you've noticed. But we know that we're judging. So we can be non-judgmental with our judging. Or we can try, anyway. Mindfulness takes practice. We can, being mindful is not a big deal. It's just, okay, everybody, write the second, be mindful. Good, you did it, right? Remembering to be mindful is the hard part. So we, the invitation is to have a practice, to practice here, as you've been practicing on this cushion, on this, on this retreat, being mindful, and then bringing it out into your life and practicing it, both having a daily practice, and we'll talk more about that tomorrow, and also being, remembering to be mindful. You're sitting, um, standing in line, waiting to get something at the post office. So be aware of your body and feet. You're about to get in a fight with someone. Notice your sensations. You're missing 
something, you're sad about it, notice how you're feeling. Mindfulness is just a moment of turning our attention to what's true, what's happening, as you've been doing it here on the cushion. It takes practice, as you've noticed. It's not easy. It's against the stream. It's against a culture of distraction. But it's doable. And you've all seen results, even in the short time, over a couple of days, you've seen results of practicing the mindfulness again and again. Now, a way I like to think about the benefits of mindfulness is what, I, what we talk about as disidentification. As we're mindful and we just keep paying attention again and again, we start to see that thoughts are arising and they're just thoughts. Body sensations are arising, they're just body sensations. They're not me, they're not mine. Because what we're doing so much of the time is creating the sense of me and mine. It's all, I mean, we're all, we're all about us. I mean, it's me, it's mine. It is, our lives are about, um, for many of us, much of the time, creating this identity. We create it through our views, through our opinions, through our sense of self. We create whole worlds in a matter of seconds. You know, you've seen that. You, you, suddenly you have this whole story about the person sitting to your left. Right? You know everything about them. You've imagined who they are and what they do, and you have no idea if that's true. And we do this constantly, not just in silence. We constantly create worlds and we suffer because we identify, we believe what we think. Now that is a bumper sticker I have seen. Don't believe what you think. Have you seen that? So um, this is just a little story, and the reason I'm telling it, well, one, to illustrate my point, but two, it will become evident in a moment. Um, I was, I was in a, um, sorry, I was, I was going, in, I was in the airport, and I was going through the, the, the metal detector and putting all my stuff on the, on the, um, what is it called? <laughs> Conveyor belt, thank you. And so I, I happened that day just to have a ton of stuff. I had these big bulky boots that, of course, I had to take off with lots of laces. And I had a laptop and I had a bunch of bags that I had stuffed in because you only could take two things. But anyway, so I, I was trying to get through and I put it all on the conveyor belt and I was going really, really slowly. And there was this person behind me who was getting very irritated with me and started actually, like, she kind of pushed her stuff through and hit my stuff, and then I got really mad, and I was like, I, I, just, I just got very angry, and I was like, this person is so pushy, I can't believe they did this. What do they think they are? Don't they realize I have a lot of stuff? And I just created this massive world of views and opinions about who this person was, and I could tell that they were thinking, I'm such a slow poke, why doesn't that woman go? So anyway, I get through, and she kind of mumbled sorry to me. And we get through and we're walking and just walking down through, um, through the airport. And I see the woman and I suddenly I look at her and I turn and I realized it was Mora. <laughs> remember? She remembered. So, what's my point? Oh, we were both on the same flight, even. To New York. To New York. That's cute. Oh, right. We were going to New York, so 
that's pushiness. Pushiness. So, so she was going to New York in a pushy way. I was going to work at New York in a slow, mindful way. And um, we were driving each other crazy. And it was because... Well, okay, so part of the point here is that I had created this world in my mind that had no basis in truth, in a sense. And when I actually saw that it was, it was my friend, it was someone I really, really loved, who had irritated me because I had created this whole vision, and it just crumbled. And suddenly I felt happy and joyous and so excited, and we spent the whole ride together. We flew together, we got someone to move so we could sit in the seats together, and it was great. But <laughs> we do this all the time. We create these worlds and this sense of self, and then we feel indignant because we know we're right. We suffer. Have you ever heard the phrase, would you rather be, would you rather be right or free? <laughs> Which one? Sometimes when I'm fighting with my partner, I ask myself, would you rather be right or free? And usually right is the first answer. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be right. And then I relax. No, I'd rather be free and happy, actually. So we can learn to practice through our mindfulness and maybe we might have a big wake-up call like I did in that moment and learn that um, we, can be, we can be compassionate, we can be kind, we can be mindful just through paying close attention and not letting ourselves get so caught up in these worlds. So the sixth factor is the factor that follows on all of this. As we practice calming and concentrating through effort, developing investigation, using our mindfulness, and then equanimity arises. Equanimity is this beautiful, beautiful state of mind that I know, having heard from many of you, you've touched in this weekend. It's this state of mind where we, things are even, we're even-minded, we're balanced, and it's not dependent on conditions. Mark was talking some about this last night, but it's when our minds can be, okay, things as they are. I can be with things as they are. It's just another pain in my knee. It's just another bout of loneliness. This equanimity can be at peace in the midst of the turbulence of our lives. And it's really quite astonishing when we get it. It, it just, it's like this beautiful, beautiful moment that we, and we, we have it in general, it happens in our lives. Um, but when we realize that we can be even, that we don't have to get caught into the dramas of things, So I had this experience um, where I really, really got what equanimity was. It didn't happen in an airport. I was, um, I I spent a year uh, living as a Buddhist nun in Burma. This was in 1998. And it was really difficult circumstances there for me. It was a very unpleasant situation. There was lots of bugs there were snakes. I was living in the jungle. I was living. There were snakes and spiders and scorpions and centipedes, and it was kind of a nightmare. 
and I hated the food, and the, it was really hot all the time, and it was, um, I was just, I was there because I was really dedicated, and I wanted to practice, and I had a teacher who was over there, but I wasn't very happy with the conditions, and I spent a lot of time being very indignant, thinking I was right, and, um, and unhappy. So, um, one of the things that bugged me the most was the mosquitoes. You know, of all those horrible, horrible snakes and spiders, it was the mosquitoes that drove me nuts. So you couldn't really do walking meditation at certain times of the day because they'd swarm you. And so I was spending a lot of time, and I was there for a long period of time, so I had a lot of time on my hands, designing mosquito traps. <laughs> so I would sit in, the, in my meditation hut, and I'd think, oh, well, how could I really get... And then I would try it. So the huts had little holes in the walls, so the first thing I did was I patched up all the holes with magazines, and I kind of stuck them to the wall. But then it was about 110, 120, so I just started to suffocate. So that mosquito trap was unsuccessful. And then, um, then I had this idea that I would... Um, take a bucket of lake water that was really stinky and smelly and attract them and put it in the middle of my, of my room and they would fly and they'd land on it and they'd sit there. And then I'd wake up in the morning and I'd throw a blanket over it and rush them out and it was completely unsuccessful, that one. <laughs> and, um, but then I did come up with a really great trap. I, um, if I did this at night, I turned out all the lights in my hut and I turned the light on outside and I opened the window wide and I stood in front of the window like this and I yelled, come and get me! <laughs> and they'd fly. They were really flying towards the light, right? And they would fly and they would come at me and they'd, I'd jump out of the way and they'd fly out the window. It was great. It worked. I was like this Toreador, you know, for mosquitoes. Um, <laughs> but there was this little problem. I wasn't really meditating. You know, I was, <laughs> I was spending a lot of time designing mosquito traps and acting them out. And at a certain point, it really it occurred to me that you know I can design all the mosquito traps in the world, but no matter what I did, there would always be another mosquito. And that maybe I could learn to have a mind that could be present with what was happening. Just, okay, there's the mosquito. It's unpleasant. Deal with it. Rather than trying to escape it and manipulate and get away and all of that. And it was then that equanimity began to dawn on me. And I began to relax. And then I had a little mantra that I used for myself, which was, there's always another mosquito. So... You can have that. It's yours. Whenever you start to feel like, okay, now, now everything is, is going to be perfect and never change, there's always another mosquito. So that was equanimity coming into my life. And the promise with this practice is our potential for equanimity, for, for a mind that is unmoved, a mind that can say this too, and this, and this. And you know what people are like who really have a lot of equanimity. You want to be in their presence. They seem to have a certain quiet joy about them and ease. And it's not apathy. It's not, I don't care. It's just this understanding, this too. May I be with things exactly as they are. This is our practice here. So the final quality in this whole set 
goes, it becomes, and I think it's, this is really so important in the practice, is this quality of joy. Joy as an awakened factor of mind and as a potential for who we can be in the world filled with joy. So joy arises in our practice. You experienced it when you were sitting here. Some of you talked about it in the groups today. It was just, I just felt happy. There wasn't any particular reason, but I just was happy. This is joy that comes from practice. And sometimes it's a more kind of showy sense of rapture. There's what one of my teachers used to call thrills and chills. You know, a sense of like vibration and excitement and energy. And sometimes it's a much more subtle and quiet happiness or joy. When you experience joy in your practice or in your life, let it in. Let it in. It's your birthright. We can be happy. We have the capacity to be happy. It feels to me, and I've, I've experienced this and seen it, that we carry this goodness, this inner goodness inside ourselves. But it gets so obscured and covered up by our self-judgments and by our busyness and by our longing and our loss and all of that. And as we practice and we begin to part these veils and we begin to just let things clear out a bit, it's what emerges is not some mystical thing. It's just the natural joy that really is who we are. This inherent goodness, this quality inside ourselves. And it's so important to drink it in because I don't think, I, we, we, in our culture, everybody talks about being happy, but it's happiness usually based on conditions. Getting the perfect relationship, getting the perfect item, <coughs> item the job, the thing you want, the money, whatever it is. But spiritual happiness and happiness that comes from this Dharma practice is um, much more profound and much more real. It's the happiness of, it's kind of, it's kind of our inner, it's, it's an internal happiness that's not dependent on our conditions. It's available to us in any moment. And you see it in some of the great spiritual leaders, like when you see the Dalai Lama, I don't know if anyone saw him on the Barbara Walters special the other day, but he was so happy, he just was laughing the entire time, giggling, really. It's just, it's this quality, this lightness of being, this joy that it's just, oh, okay, I'm not so identified with myself. It's not so much about me, it's, I'm not taking everything so personally, it's not so serious, I'm actually just kind of happy. And not a like fake happy, and not a not a um, oblivious happy, but a true happiness. And then this happiness and this joy, in my mind, manifests as service to the world. That we represent, and with all these qualities of awakening, and all this this whole awakened mind starts to go out into the world, and we serve, and we live. And we meet whoever it is that we meet with joy and happiness and ease and love. This is from um, 
Henry Drummond, he says, you will find as you look back upon your life that the moments you have really lived are the moments when you have done things in the spirit of love. This is from the place from which we want to act. And this is the place, this can, this, as we begin to tap into this joy, into our self-love, into our love for the world, into acting from this place of wisdom and being a, a person in the world that acts from love. What a wonderful, wonderful gift to this planet. It'll change the face of the planet. So we've got to get the scientists to keep proving that meditation <laughs> works so everybody can transform and be happier and more joyful and more kind and compassionate and patient and loving and all those other nice things. So that's the promise of this practice. And I just wanted to end with a quote from um, one of the girls who did the ADD group with me who um, came to the group very, very depressed. And, you know, a lot of things with ADD, there's a lot of self-esteem issues and sad and, and just general unhappiness and um, sometimes... And she was suffering, I think she had had a lot of, I think she had a big breakup and she was really depressed. And this is the, this is the quote that she gave me on the last day, and I wrote it down when she said it. She said, I've been pretty depressed for the whole year. See, I got involved with this guy, and I knew he was bad for me, but I was hooked on him. And then when we broke up six months ago, all I could do was think about him. He was always in my head, like he possessed me. When I started meditation, I found it hard, kind of boring, and I was always sad. But one day I realized, I'm not my thoughts. I don't have to keep carrying my boyfriend around in my head. (laughs) So I let him go, and now my mind is free. It's free. That's what she said. I I just still... (sighs) Sixteen. So I let go, and now my mind is free. So let's sit for a few minutes. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 15, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.